We are um, surprised we're still in Mark's gospel. So if you want to open up uh, your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 14, that's where we are. Um, We're going to be looking at uh, just verses 1 to 26 this morning here. And one of the things that um, I really love about the the scriptures uh, are some of the oddities that they contain, or that they're sort of an odd cast of characters, if you will. Um, And I find that to be one of the really authenticating uh, aspects of the scriptures, that we don't just see caricatures. We we see real people, real people like us, warts and all, right? Uh, They have their good days, they, they have amazing things that they do, And they have some real embarrassing things as well, and just all kinds of awkwardness in between. Um, And and today we pick up in Mark 14 on two, what I'll call two dinner scenes, two suppers. And these two dinners are just a couple days apart. And in each one of them, we find kind of a, a quiet actor who says almost nothing at all, but each carries out an action that really reveals their true heart toward Jesus. And there's a stark uh, contrast between their responses to Jesus. And this, this stark contrast is meant to provoke us to consider our posture toward Christ, to examine ourselves, to ask some questions, such as, what is the condition of our discipleship? What is the state of our affection for Christ? What is the the real measure of our devotion uh, towards Jesus? And so this this passage is a real humble reminder that it is much more than just mere profession or even practice, but the heart that animates these things in our life that really matters. That's the place from which our discipleship emanates. And so what we see here this morning, we've got these two suppers, And we're presented with one who acts very uh, selflessly, voluntarily making a sacrifice for Jesus against the other who acts very selfishly, who essentially sacrifices Jesus for themselves. And so this, this contrast of these two sort of actors side by side here is meant to prompt us to consider our discipleship. So we go to dinner scene number one, close friends, in Bethany. This is chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. 
It's being fulfilled right now, isn't it? Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Um, I don't know how good your biblical uh, geography is. Um, Bethany is this uh, quaint little town, kind of a bedroom community, just two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. Go across the Kidron Valley, uh, up the Mount of Olives, over the ridge and around the bend, and there is Bethany. It's on your way from Jerusalem down to Jericho, if you were headed that way. Uh, But it's this quaint little town, and it's a place that um, Jesus visited often because he had friends there. His friends were Mary and Martha and their brother, Lazarus. You might remember Lazarus is the one that Jesus raised from the dead. Um, Martha is the one who is, I don't know if she actually is the big sister, but she plays the big sister role, doesn't she? She's the bossy pants. She's kind of telling everybody what's supposed to happen, and she's concerning herself with the affairs of things, and she just kind of seems like the firstborn. And then there is her sister, Mary, and Mary is the one whom we always find. When we find her in Scripture, we always find Mary at the feet of Jesus. It's really striking. We find her at his feet as a disciple, as a learner. This was a rare posture uh, for for that day. Typically, rabbis did not teach women, but Jesus taught Mary, and she sat at his feet and listened and soaked it up. Uh, We find her at Jesus' feet lamenting when Lazarus uh, died and Jesus showed up days later, she falls at his feet and laments, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And then once again, our third sort of big encounter with her, here she is again, actually anointing Jesus and not just his head, but as we read in John's gospel, we also find that she anoints his feet and in fact uses her hair to wipe his feet. Um, In Mark's gospel, she's not even named here, right? It's just a woman, an unnamed woman. And I think that's Mark's way of sort of drawing attention to the action more more than to the the person. Um, But I'm going to draw attention to the person. So sorry, Mark, I'm not preaching exactly how you laid it out here. But uh, I want to show you more about Mary than is presented here. Mark's gospel is kind of uh, sort of bullet point gospel, right? Chuck, 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 chuck. But um, I want to draw some more things out. Uh, I think it's also worth noting, if you take your hand out, flip it over on the back, it's worth noting that there are, I believe, two different anointings of Jesus that sound very, very similar. But in fact, I think they're two separate events. So the similarities between these, and I'll say that I, the, the one that is unique, I think, is in Luke's gospel. And then Matthew and Mark and John all seem to describe this one that we're looking at this morning, Mary of Bethany. But in Luke's gospel, sort of the similarities are, um, right, it's a a dinner scene. Jesus is the guest, guest guest of honor. Uh, Both women anoint Jesus with perfume from an alabaster jar. In both cases, the owner of the house is named Simon. It's kind of amazing. And you might start to go, well, maybe this is the same event. Uh, But there uh, are some striking differences. Uh, In one owner of the home is Simon the Pharisee. The other is Simon the leper. And those two don't really relate to one another. Also, in Luke's gospel, it takes place early in Jesus' ministry, before he's even met uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, a year and a half earlier. 
Also, it takes place way up in Capernaum, 100 miles away, whereas this one obviously takes place right here in Bethany. Uh, There are some others here, and maybe the the biggest, the last sort of striking difference is that Mary of Bethany is a a devoted disciple of Jesus. But the woman in the other situation is a known sinner, and we are kind of left to believe that that she is sort of a promiscuous, um, sexually immoral person. And that's what offends the Pharisees. Two different, two different anointings here. And I just wanted to um, sort of draw that out for you. Uh, and I want to make just three observations here on this first part here. First of all, what we see is what we'll call her sacrifice of faith. That is a sacrifice that stems her, from her faith. It emanates from her faith. Uh, and this, the passage here is clear this perfume is expensive. This is some costly stuff. You thought gas was expensive these days. This is expensive. This perfume, which was made of nard, pure nard, this comes from a a root in India. Uh, The alabaster jar that contained it um, had to be completely sealed to protect its contents. So when you were ready to use it, you know, you didn't unscrew the, the top or pull out a little stopper or something. You broke it to use it all at once. That's how it was intended. Um, We're told that its contents are worth 300 denarii. And a denarius is a day's wages for for a laborer, day's wages. So this is easily a year's uh, salary for the average laborer. Um, I also think it's, it's worth noting that the passage doesn't say that it's worth a year of Mary's salary. In other words, if you were to look at her 1040 form and look at line 11, this, is, this wouldn't correspond. The cost or the value of this would not correspond to her income because as a woman in this day and age, she would not likely have a career or a vocation that would match the average laborer's wages. In other words, there's market value and there's personal value. This was so valuable and given her situation, Most likely this was an heirloom or something that she had saved up for years to to procure. So I want you to think about this for a moment. What do you have at home that is worth a year's salary? Most of us are going to go, nothing, not a thing. Your salary? Nope. Some Some of you might have a nice boat. Some of you might have a piece of vacation property. Some of you, uh, you might have grandma's jewelry that's worth quite a lot. Uh, maybe you have an antique car or something or some, I don't know, paintings. But this is Alaska, so more than likely it's a skid steer or uh, what else have we got? A very expensive trailer, uh, maybe a backhoe, right? Something like this. Something that's worth a year's wages. Imagine this. Imagine liquidating it and giving it away in an instant. Not because you had to, but because your heart's affections compelled you. That is some significant affection that is on display here, and that's what I want to draw attention to. We see this sacrifice of her faith, but we see it is driven by her affection for Christ. Again, Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four, and 
it records probably the fewest details, um, but details really matter to me, and I think they fill in and provide a lot of color to the story. So I'm going to import some from some of the other accounts here. And I want to just kind of think and imagine what it was that produced this affection in Mary as we think about her relationship with Jesus. First of all, he taught her, right? Which again was an uncommon thing that a rabbi would teach a woman in that day and age. I'm not saying that's how it should have been. I'm just saying it's how it was. So this was unique. So she had a rabbi who taught her, who loved her, who gave her good instruction. So she felt this closeness. They were friends. Honest to goodness friends. He visited often. He commended her eagerness to to learn. He even defended her from what I'll call her big sister, even if, you know, Martha's not the older. She She was playing the role of big sister. And Jesus defended her against her criticisms. He wept with her when her brother died. He entered into her grief. And then he gave her brother back to her when he raised him from the dead. He stayed in Bethany often, again, because of his genuine friendship with this family. Uh, Again, John's gospel records that not only did she break this alabaster jar and pour out its contents on his head, but used her hair to wipe his feet. That is sort of blushingly intimate, okay, if I can say that. I, I appreciate it, as a, as, particularly as a fellow without hair. Uh, it gets my attention. When I hug my wife, and I, my wife has the most beautiful brown hair, and it is thick, and I love it. And when I hug her and pull her close, it's great to feel some hair on me. That's nice. <laughs> and then, you know, when I pull away, it'll sort of comb through my beard a little bit. And I'm just, I'm just noting that. So you don't just hear the words, but realize there is a tactile care and affection that she gave Jesus here. It really is blushingly intimate, okay? Um, This isn't just a donation, right? She didn't just make an electronic transfer of funds. This was an act of devotion and closeness and affection. And Jesus describes it. What is the word he uses? Beautiful. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Uh, But we're told that the other guests at the dinner uh, were actually bothered by this, right? This extravagance. This was a waste. Why this waste? We We could have sold this thing and put in a swimming pool or given it to the poor, right? You get the sense, however, that it's Mary of Bethany who might be the only one who really discerns what is about to happen to Jesus. She stands in contrast to the other 12 who have already been given three clear, explicit predictions of Jesus' passion, of his being betrayed, of his death, and of his resurrection, and they don't get it. But Mary seems to get it. In fact, Jesus says of her, he says that her anointing was in preparation for his burial. She seems to be the only one attentive to what's about to happen. So we see her anointing as preparation for burial. And when I think about this, I can't help but to think, what a sweet ministry this must have been for Jesus, to to feel this, to receive this. Um, Jesus is, after all, he is the one who is always serving others, healing others, 
delivering others from illness and from death. He's calming storms. He's busting demons. He's teaching people. And he's preparing to pour out his life for the sin of the world. And in that moment of that burden, she comes and pours out the contents of this jar and anoints him. And I think that Jesus' description is wonderful. This is beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Um, But not everybody found it beautiful, right? Most of the people there objected, specifically Judas. Judas is what we might call triggered. He's so irritated, he has to leave. He gets up and goes. And one of the things we're told, not in Mark's gospel, but in John's gospel, is that this really touched on a particular heart problem for Judas. Judas dealt with greed. For Judas, money was a problem. And when he saw this, he was out. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So in transition here, we kind of see, again, just the striking contrast, this beautiful generosity contrasted against this very ugly treachery. Two shades of discipleship. And we're meant to be confronted by them. So we'll move on to dinner scene number two here. Passover with the 12. Verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upstairs room, uh, room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining uh, at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, take it, this is my body. And when he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So again, we'll make three observations of this scene. I'm going to use some similar wording here, but of course, there's very different impact. First of all, we see Judas' sacrifice of faith. But in contrast to Mary, his is not a sacrifice that comes from faith or emanates from faith. He sacrifices his faith. He destroys it, so to speak. Whereas Mary gives of herself for Christ, Judas gives away Christ for himself. 
in a very hideous inversion of things. And again, it is greed and pride and treachery that is driving this. Secondly here, we see his true affection. And, and this is just really an interesting development, again, from John's gospel, which said that he who was a sort of a keeper of the team resources, Judas would regularly dip his hand in and help himself. And then he sees the lavish display and then he goes on to sell his savior. It is greed, greed, greed. And his true affection is exposed. So I want to ask the question, how, how do you become, how does one become a Judas? How does that happen? How, how can somebody walk with Jesus, hear his teachings, see the miracles firsthand, know his power, feel his love, and yet throw it all away and destroy his very soul? How, how does that happen? And I give you the answer, slow and steady compromise. Slow and steady compromise. Continual compromise with no breaks of confession. No points of realizing. No points of declaring that this is wrong and repenting and turning away from it. Just a slow, steady progression of compromise. Uh, maybe you've heard the old expression, Sow a thought and reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Judas has allowed greed to grow in him and to eventually flourish in him. And I think in him we see the real threat of indwelling sin. We see what the real risk is for all of us if we let that little baby dragon of sin sit there and grow undetected, unconfessed, unaddressed. It can be devastating. Uh, I've been reading a lot of St. Augustine lately. One, because I like him. Two, uh, because I had a class. Maybe it's the other way around. One, because I had a class. <laughs> Two, because I like him. But um, he has a really, I think, apt description of the nature of fallen man, he describes us as creatures with disordered loves. Disordered loves. It's, it's not that we are primarily thinking things, uh, as Rene Descartes would say, I think, therefore I am. But Augustine would say, no, we are primarily loving things. God made us to be in a loving relationship with him. And when we rebel, embrace other things, it's our heart's affections that cast upon them and our disordered loves which lead us astray and lead us far from Christ. And so we see this run full to the end in Judas as a warning to us. And what he ends up doing is his greed, we see his greed actually make preparations for Christ's burial, not in the way Mary did it, but he actually puts down the logistics that makes it so. Uh, I'm always struck when we're sort of taken into the Last Supper here and think about Jesus knowing what he knows and yet about to do what he's about to do. Uh, think about this. He knows the religious leaders or the so-called religious leaders are scheming to kill him. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows that Peter is going to deny him 
He knows that all of the disciples in just a few hours are going to abandon him. He knows that, and again, just a couple days, all of Jerusalem is going to cry out, crucify him. And he knows that the Romans will execute him in the goriest and most shameful and painful way of death known to man. In this moment, at this dinner, he knows all of this. And yet he is pouring out grace and mercy. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> We're getting there, though. Jesus takes this meal, right? A very, a very, um, this meal had been practiced and, and celebrated by Israel for over a thousand years, Passover. And of course, Passover looked back to the time where God, by his grace, as he is extracting Israel, his chosen people, out of Egypt, out of slavery. And we get to the 10th plague, right? And in order to release Pharaoh's grip on, his, on, on Israel, on God's people, he sends the plague of the firstborn, where sort of the angel of death will pass through the town and take the life of all the firstborn. But one could take refuge from this by slaughtering a lamb and taking, in faith, taking the blood and putting it over the doorposts of your home as so to say, uh, I am trusting in the Lord and his provision. And the angel of death would pass over. And by that act, they were released from captivity. And for a thousand years, they celebrate this. And now Jesus sits with them at this celebration and infuses this with new meaning and new significance. He is our Passover lamb. It is by his blood that we take shelter from the coming wrath. It is in him that we are saved. It is not our obedience that saves us, but what Christ has done on our behalf. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I want to wrap up, for those of you who are wondering, <laughs> with this question. That was, that was awesome, by the way. I love that. The kids the last couple of weeks have been great. <laughs> Consider the sharp contrast between Mary of Bethany and Judas Iscariot. Okay, two different disciples. Uh, it'd be too simple to just ask you, which one are you like? So let me change the question. I want you to consider the trajectory of your discipleship. Which direction are you moving? That's what I want to know. Or rather, that's what I want you to know about yourself. If that's hard for you to answer, let me phrase it in a different way. What do you love? What do you love? Are you growing in your love and affection for Jesus and in your obedience to him and in your praise and adoration to him? Is he the delight of your life, truly the delight of your life that you would sacrifice anything for him? Or is the trajectory of your discipleship more like Jesus, Judas, a practice of slow and steady compromise? Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, oh, I'm a little frustrated with Jesus. I'm finding him to be an inconvenient presence in my life. I find being tethered to him is growing old and stale. And to be honest, I'm just going through the motions of my discipleship. In fact, if I were honest, I'd tell you that instead of letting Jesus use me, I tend to use him for my ends. The question is, which direction are you moving? Are you moving towards Jesus in devotion and discipleship? Or are you pushing away in quiet apathy? I want to do something different here. Um, 
From time to time, we do things different. Um, we're going to have a time of confession. We're going to have a time of, of personal reflection and an opportunity for you to come before the Lord and confess uh, something that you may know to be sin in your life. And then all together, we're going to read a written confessional that I think is an excellent guide for how we ought to do this. And I'll sort of tell you where this is coming from. Um, Number one, confession and repentance are great gifts from God. Unfortunately, I don't find the evangelical church seems to bother with them very much, at least not confession. And I think we should. It's, it's these opportunities that we are prompted and we say, I'm not going to continue on the path of slow and steady compromise, but I'm going to call sin, sin, and I'm going to do the heart work to repent of it, which is a turning away from and a turning toward Christ. 